This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. So greetings and welcome to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Courtright, who co-authored a manuscript in the Annals that's entitled Telomeres and Interstitial Lung Disease, The Short and the Long of It. So our discussion today will focus on the role of telomere shortening on the pathogenesis of interstitial lung disease, as well as the implications on the natural history and management of these patients. Dr. Courtright is an assistant professor of medicine in the Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Division and the section of Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplantation at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the co-chair of the Ethics Committee at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. So welcome, and thanks, Dr. Courtright, for joining the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so let's jump right in. So for the sake of review, Dr. Courtright, what are telomeres? and how are they related to lung disease in general and interstitial lung disease in particular? So most people use an analogy that I like when describing telomeres. So you know those like little plastic caps on the ends of your shoelaces that like help you tie your shoes and keep them together? So if you think of the chromosome as the shoelace, the telomere is that plastic cap. It's not a perfect metaphor, but over time as the cell divides, that cap, that telomere provides a buffer so that the chromosome doesn't fray. As the telomeres get shorter, um, it can send signals to the cell that says that it's time to enter senescence or even cell death. Now, unlike our shoes, the telomeres are actually regulated so that they can be stable or even in some cases expand, and there's this complex system of enzymes and trafficking elements that helps maintain the telomeres. But if there's something wrong with that regulatory mechanism, then the telomeres can shorten prematurely, and that impacts organ function. And when we think about that in lung disease, if those healthy cells, if the alveolar cells are dying early, they can be replaced by collagen and fibroblasts, and then they can accumulate, which is one characteristic of pulmonary fibrosis or interstitial lung disease. So how are, how is telomere length measured, and how well validated are the methods that are in clinical use now? So I think there's been a lot of evolution in how people have measured telomere length, um, starting in the research context and then commercially. So I'll focus mainly on commercial, um, but I think it's helpful to know what research tests are available. So the two most common commercially available tests, if you just Google it, there's a lot of different companies that offer it, but the CLIA-certified tests, the ones that are kind of can be used for our clinical purposes, can either be PCR-based or they can be based on this technology called FlowFish. So not to get too deep into the weeds, but basically both of them will give you an average telomere length, typically of a peripheral blood cell, so it's run on like a a peripheral blood draw, and they'll say based on other people from a reference population this age, you have a telomere length like X percent. So usually if we say it's 10% or less is is consistent with short telomeres, 1% or less is pretty concerning for short telomeres. There are some more sophisticated methods that I think are really interesting uh, in the research realm that aren't ready for prime time clinically that can actually say the individual length of each te- of each telomere in the chromosome. So rather than giving you an average, they can say chromosome 11 has one really short telomere. And we know one really short telomere can trigger 
senescence or cell death in a way that maybe isn't reflected in the average population. And and just in terms of the validation of these methods, Andrew, is it is it pretty reliable? Are the test results reliable? Yeah, so there's a lot of variability um, between labs. So there's been some studies that have shown up to 20% variability, but there's some quality control measures that I think have reduced that variability. A lot depends on the right reference population. And so if you're using flow fish, for example, you want to have a flow fish reference population as opposed to a PCR-based reference population. I would say in general that they're pretty internally well-validated as long as you're consistently using the same lab. Okay. And just from a practical perspective, what's the turnaround time once you order the test? And importantly, obviously, what's the cost? How expensive are the assays? Yeah, so um, the turnaround time is usually 7 to 14 days, depending on where you send it. There's a couple of labs in the United States and in Canada uh, that are set up to receive external samples. Um, it's important if you're thinking about reaching out to one of these labs to ask them what time of day they need to receive the samples. The telomere stability can actually um, change over time so that if it's like 72 hours after the draw, you may be getting results that are not consistent with what you would have gotten at the beginning. So that's really important to clarify with them. You should also ask them what cell lines they test, if they're going to look at granulocytes or lymphocytes or even NK cells. Um, and so just establishing a relationship and understanding what the lab expects and needs. So the initial screen that I talked about, which just says what percentile you are, usually runs between $300 to $800, depending on which tests they're using. Um, you can check in advance with insurance if they'll cover. Usually um, it uh, is covered uh, if the indication is clearly identified and there's the appropriate documentation. Um, we try to check in advance, and it's important just to have a system up and running for that. If you're actually looking for a mutation, though, it's I would say it's important to clarify in advance. Um, so this is in, as opposed to what's your telomere length. It's like, do you have a mutation in your telomere maintenance platforms? There, um, what we've done is we basically had a, a relationship where you can hold the sample until the prior authorization is done. Okay. So, Andrew, what, what other diseases, and we'll talk outside the lung for now, are associated with shortened telomeres? So I think classically and where people started to think about um, short telomere, what we call technically is the short telomere syndrome, is uh, an early-in-life condition called dyskeratosis congenita, um, where some of these folks are making it into adulthood, but they're almost always diagnosed in childhood. And... So these are individuals who have manifestations of premature aging uh, in cell lines that undergo a lot of turnover. So they kind of run down things like their bone marrow, their uh, GI tract, so they get uh, mucosal leukoplakia, um, and then they have premature graying of the hair, which is often a hallmark in adults, and then things like cirrhosis and pulmonary fibrosis from the extra kind of bone marrow manifestations. So it's now turn into the lung. So which which interstitial yeah. lung disease <laughs> a good segue. Uh, <laughs> have been associated with, with telomere shortening or telomere-related mutations? So pretty much all of them. Um, I think that um, the telomere mutations, and when we talk about the mutations, these are things like TERT or TARC are the two common ones that we talk about, but then there's kind of a whole host in that telomere maintenance machinery that can be mutated. So the most common one is, is IPF. 
So in familial IPF, which we usually consider to be two or more primary biologic members who have uh, an interstitial lung disease, up to about 30% of those patients have shortened telomeres or a telomere-related mutation. Um, there's a pretty broad range of diseases, though, within ILD that have been associated uh, with short telomeres. Interestingly, no one's associated LIP with short telomeres. Um, I don't know if it's because it's a rare disease on top of a, another rare disease, um, but pretty much most of the other ones, like CPFE or um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis-associated ILD, have been correlated in epidemiologic studies. So, you know, I, I was particularly interested um, in, in your review. You talked about um, a number of these interstitial lung diseases, and, and the one I was particularly interested in was, was hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The pathogenesis makes sense in a disease like IPF, but what, what's the hypothesis about how telomere-related mutations play a role in, in HP? Is it that the mutations in general increase susceptibility to fibrotic injury, or is there something else that, that's important? Yeah, that's a really great question, and I'm not sure that we have 100% of an answer for it. Um, for some patients who have telomere-related mutations who have another mutation, like MUC5B, those people definitely seem to be in the IPF-type category. So it may be that there's kind of co-mutations that are appearing that are leading people down an IPF pathway, um, or it may be that there's a specific type of exposure as you said, that's happening in a specific cell type like alveolar uh, type 2 cells that's triggering a cascade of events that's leading to HP. I think it's a fascinating question because I, I don't know what about short telomeres would necessarily trigger the granulomatous process. Right. Um, or right. if these are just people who were going to get HP anyway and they happen to have short telomeres. So I think it's an area that uh, is ripe for additional investigation. So I'm going to ask you to. I'm going to ask you to hypothesize again. So these these folks who yeah. have short telomeres, would they develop another interstitial lung disease? You think in the absence uh, of an inciting antigen like happens in HP? Yeah, it, it's and that's it's another great question. I mean, we know that there's variable penetrance, so there's definitely people out there who um, really seem to live well into their 70s or 80s who have these mutations or who have short telomeres and don't seem to have really significant interstitial lung disease. I don't know if that's because they've avoided, you know, smoking. It's hard to imagine they've avoided a respiratory viral infection their entire life. Um, but they may just not be susceptible in a way that um, another member of their family has been, either through exposure or just kind of co-varying mutations. You know, you can see what's called um, genetic anticipation in these cases. So if you inherit the mutation and shorter telomeres from your parents, you can have an earlier age of onset. Um, and so it may be that what we're seeing is as generations are passed down and people are living longer, we're starting to see more of these cases earlier because of a combination of exposures but also genetic anticipation. So in terms of natural history, Andrew, do patients with interstitial lung diseases like IPF associated with short telomeres, do they do worse than those without telomere abnormalities? Yeah, that's, it, it's hard to say. There have been some cohort studies that suggest that. So if you take, to go back to one of your earlier questions, so if you take like somebody with short telomeres or a telomere-related mutation who has, let's say, NSIP and somebody who has IPF, even with the same mutation, there doesn't seem to be much difference in survival between those two populations. 
Um, so the the ILD type uh, doesn't seem to make a difference, which is sort of surprising because we think of something like IPF as maybe having a worse prognosis than NSIP. Um, but when you take people with familial IPF and these TERT or TERC mutations specifically, they do seem to have a little bit worse of a prognosis as far as we can tell. So, for example, um, at I think around four and a half uh, median years for survival uh, following diagnosis in IPF patients versus seven and a half for those without the mutation. That's kind of the mm -hmm. epidemiologic studies that we quote. But I think larger I think larger cohort studies would be helpful in this area. So you know I have a basic question that I probably should have asked you earlier on. So is is telomere shortening always pathologic, or are there you know otherwise healthy older adults who, if you test them, may have telomere shortening but don't have mm -hmm. don't have disease? Is it always pathologic? Yeah, I think that goes back to the kind of discussion of what the the telomere length actually means. So kind of by definition, there are going to be some adults who have like quote unquote normal short telomeres because it's done based on a reference curve. So anytime you take a reference curve of a population, you're going to have some people who are have the 10th percentile telomere length just by definition. So, you know, what we try to focus on is the less than 10th percentile and really the less than 1st percentile, which really seems out of kind of the statistical norm. But I'm sure we're catching some people who just have, by reference population standards, shorter telomeres that aren't pathogenic. So I'm sure you've seen these patients as well in your practice, but, but you know, I've certainly seen it and it's been reported that there are a group of older patients, for example, in their 70s or so, who... Uh, have interstitial abnormalities uh, that's, that are often picked up on CT scans that are done for other indications who mm -hmm. have normal pulmonary function studies, don't appear to have clinically significant ILD, and we follow these patients, and, and many of them just sort of go along their merry way and, and don't have clinical disease. So is there any data on what telomeres look like in, in those patients, and could that be a guide to sort of perhaps establishing what the natural history would be in these folks? Yeah, it, it's a it's a tricky question because so much of the attention has been focused on um, the familial kind of cohorts that seem to aggregate together where you're really getting younger age manifestations. So like for TERC mutations or TERT mutations, the average diagnoses are in the 50s or early 60s. So if you have somebody who's getting out into their 70s or 80s and they're just having incidental ILD findings, on CAT scans, it's less likely that they're going to be carrying a mutation, and so I think, one, they're less likely to be screened, so we don't know as much about it. Now, I will say that there are groups like in Vanderbilt, though, who are uh, who have kind of have cohorts of these uh, of patients who carry the mutation but don't have any symptoms, and they're getting yearly CAT scans. They're doing kind of genetic tests to see what the natural evolution does in that kind of younger context. Actually, you know, defining that I think would be would be particularly helpful in some of those in some of those patients. Um, so I just want to turn our attention to, to, to treatment options. So, Andrew, is there, are, is there any subgroup data about the relative efficacy of antifibrotic agents like perfenidone or an intenitive in patients who have IPF and short telomeres or telomere-related uh, mutations? I think until like a month or two ago, I probably would have said that I don't have any reason to think that uh, perfenidone wouldn't be as effective, but there's a, a group from Europe that just published some data where they, they looked, I think, at about 30 individuals 
um, who'd been on perfenadone for at least three months, and they actually didn't see any change in their decline in FVC or DLCO before or after perfenadone. So they were concerned that maybe these aren't as effective therapies in, in this population. It's a small study, so I think it would be nice to see that in some of the larger studies. In clinical practice, I think we're all recommending for the IPF-specific patients um, that they uh, uh, go on perfenadone or natanzanib um, in the absence of additional data. Interestingly, for a population that might you might think would be at higher risk for like GI side effects because of potential less replicative reserve in the gastrointestinal lumen, they actually don't seem to have a higher rate of side effects um, from a GI standpoint. There's a, another group, another paper that was just published recently that actually looked at the patients in the Panther IPF trials, which is kind of what we all reflect back on when we think about immunosuppression in this population. They actually, when they went back and looked at which patients had short telomeres in that population, it was the short telomere patients that really seemed to do worse when exposed to immunosuppression, um, which makes sense because they're going to have less marrow reserve, I think, or they're going to be at higher risk for infectious complications. So to me, that's always a challenge when you have a patient with short telomeres and they have something like NSIP, where you know you might your instincts might be immunosuppression is the way to go in this case that we should do prednisone plus then a cell cycle inhibitor. And I always have a, a challenge of thinking how is this patient's bone marrow going to respond um, in this setting? Are we going to do them more harm than good as compared to a patient without short telomeres? Actually, you know what? Let's let's answer that. Let's talk about that now. So. Um, in terms of, um, so when should a clinician think about ordering a test for telomere shortening in a patient with ILD? So, because you, you mentioned the idea of, this, you know, bone marrow, I mean, is it, you know, obviously uh, in those who have familial IPF, it sounds like that would be an indication to do it. Yep. Uh, are there, for example, patients who may have relative leukopenia? Are there other, so are there other, mm -hmm. are there other sort of pearls that would point you in the direction of, of ordering a test? Yes, I, it, anyone who has a family history of one or more relatives, for sure. Um, if someone has a history of early graying, um, and so that's really, I think, before age 30 and, like, gray-gray, not like a few gray hairs, but, you know, they're like, I went all white or all gray when I was in high school or college, or if that's happening to multiple family members, I think that can point to an underlying kind of telomere-related mutation or short telomeres. Um, if you have relatives who have unexplained bone marrow failure, or if they've had uh, uh, bone marrow issues themselves um, earlier on. Macrocytosis, interestingly, is kind of the most common or one of the most common peripheral blood findings in this patient population. So they may not have frank cytopenias, but always kind of raises my eyebrows a little bit if there's some macrocytosis. And then abnormal liver findings as well. Um, because you can get um, some degree of hepatic impairment, fibrosis, and even cirrhosis um, as a marker of this kind of constellation of symptoms. So those are really the groups where I think I should be screening this population. Um, I, there may be an underlying telomere-related mutation or uh, short telomere syndrome. And so very practically, when, when, when you're in front of the patient and you decide to order testing, what do you get? Do you get assays for, for telomere length and... Uh, a mutation analysis? Do you do one or the other? Do you do both? So so for our clinicians, how, how would they approach this? Yeah, so what we, what we do, what our practice has been here is to start with the screening test. So go ahead and send and we check uh, granulocytes and lymphocytes. Um, and uh, if it's 10th percentile and above, 
we think that that's essentially says that there is not a short telomere playing a role in this case. There can be some exceptions, and if you really need to kind of, if there's consistency with the rest of the phenotypic manifestations, then I think you need to do some more investigating. But if it's less than the 10th percentile and certainly less than the 1st percentile, that's when we go ahead and send the um, mutation screens. For this, I really recommend doing it in collaboration with medical genetics um, and or hematology. I think there's a lot of potential implications uh, for patients and their family members. And uh, I think it makes sense to really kind of send the screening in a collaborative group that's able to then counsel about the implications for other family members. Got it. So, Andrew, obviously you're a transplant pulmonologist, and, and you spent a fair amount of, uh, of time in your paper talking about specific implications for, tra for transplant patients. So I guess my question is, when do you screen lung transplant patients for telomere abnormalities? Do you use the same sort of criteria that you would for patients along a general ILD practice? Uh, so when do you screen transplant patients? And then I have a couple of follow-up questions. Yes, I think we try to follow the same kind of principles as um, the awareness of the relationship between short telomeres and pulmonary fibrosis. I think as that's becoming more common um, amongst non-transplant pulmonologists, we're definitely seeing people who are coming to us with the diagnosis of telomere-related mutation or short telomeres. Um, if somebody, uh, I think our population is enriched to a certain extent for patients with short telomeres because maybe their disease is progressing more rapidly or they are presenting younger where they're seen to be kind of a more, you know, appropriate transplant candidate based on their age. But we generally tend to use the same criteria. Okay. And so what are the possible implications or maybe I should say the unique implications of telomere-related processes and telomere-related mutations on the clinical course and outcomes after lung transplantation? I think there was a lot of concern in the transplant community based on some early experience transplanting patients with short telomere syndromes. So there were some familial patients who are known specifically to have TERC mutations who really developed kind of profound bone marrow failure after lung transplant or had a high risk for infections um, or other extra pulmonary manifestations. Uh, like hepatic failure. So there was this initial case series, case reports about these cases, and I think that put that on a lot of folks' radar. I think that if you're careful to screen in advance, you can at least identify some of the potential uh, implications, particularly of a TERC mutation, which might help you understand the bone marrow reserve. Um, but subsequently, I think there's been a lot of retrospective work that's come out now that suggested that patients with short telomere syndrome are at higher risk for chronic lung allograft dysfunction, so chronic rejection, and maybe even worse mortality after transplant. Um, I have a couple of hypotheses about that. Um, it's not totally been teased out. So one thing I think is we know that the donor, uh, the, excuse me, the recipient cells tend to then populate the allograft over time, and so there may just be less kind of stem cell reserve for allograft population, and so they just may be more susceptible to other insults. Or it may just be that we haven't developed specific protocols yet for the best management practices for patients with short telomere syndromes. And my own feeling is that if we knew more about this in advance, we could design these protocols and maybe start to see comparable outcomes. So, Andrew, I was interested um, uh, about how the identification of, of telomere abnormalities could change post-transplant management, for example, you know, avoiding 
T-cell depleting agents like like anti-thymocyte globulins. So can you summarize those for us? I think that was very interesting and, and also, again, very practical for those of us and for those colleagues who, who help manage post-transplant patients. Yeah, and I think that's something that we're all trying to learn about. So, for example, the Pittsburgh group has shown that patients with short telomere syndromes may be at more risk for CMV reactivation after transplant or um, extra organ uh, damage related to CMV, excuse me, extra pulmonary organ damage related to CMV. Um, and so, for example, if you knew somebody was a short telomere patient or carried the mutation, you might extend their CMV course longer. Um, in our own practice, if we have somebody who's CMV negative, we might prefer a CMV negative donor for that patient so that we can avoid potentially the bone marrow suppressive effects of valcite. Um, or even not have to worry about that CMV reactivation. Um, we'll oftentimes start lower doses of cell cycle inhibitors. I think, interestingly, there's some data to suggest that short telomere patients may be at lower risk for acute cellular rejection, which may, again, have to do with kind of their relative marrow reserve. Um, and then lastly, um, I think that there's some in vivo data uh, uh, excuse me, in vitro data right now that's looking at the impact of different uh, maintenance immunosuppression regimens on telomere length over time. And some preliminary data, and this is all kind of cell-based right now, may suggest that like calcineurin inhibitors tend to accelerate telomere shortening in a way that maybe mTOR inhibitors don't. And so there may be implications for choices of maintenance immunosuppression post-transplant as well. So I think it's a really exciting field. I think we're all trying to figure out, you know, what does this data mean? How do we design these protocols to really help maximize the transplant benefit? Yeah, you know, I was, I was intrigued. You mentioned, you know, for example, the use of rapamycin versus a calcineurin mm -hmm. inhibitor cyclosporin, which was the mainstay, obviously, for many years. Um, so very interesting. Um, so it, it has not only, I think, potential implications on understanding the pathophysiology, but it may result in real practical and, and potentially clinically significant uh, changes um, and alterations in treatment for our transplant patients. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, are there other are there other important considerations? Uh, we talked about CMV. Are there other opportunistic infections or malignancies that you worry about in these folks? So, you know, I think that we kind of extrapolate from the dyskeratosis congenital literature, and there's some literature um, from the dermatology side of things that individuals with short telomere syndromes tend to be more susceptible to skin cancers, um, in particular squamous cell carcinoma. So if I have a patient with short telomere syndrome, uh, who has an indication for an antifungal treatment or prophylaxis, I'm probably going to pick uh, an agent like posaconazole um, or um, isavaconazonium as opposed to voriconazole, which could potentiate that skin cancer risk. And I think it's those little things, thinking about kind of how to make these specific adjustments that in the long run together can really kind of help influence your clinical practice, knowing in advance you know, what you're dealing with. So I have a I have a question that um is a little bit provocative and maybe a little a little paranoid. <laughs> so with the finding of, of a short telomere uh syndrome or a or a telomere related mutation, would that ever serve as a relative contraindication of transplant or, or potentially uh, impact the committee's selection of a transplant patient for for their suitability or is that um or is that just sort of you know what, patient has it, we know it, and we'll deal with it. Um, but, you know, it's always sometimes you find stuff, especially yeah, when yeah. the history is, and I wonder how that, if if at all, it impacts on a on a committee's decision. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's something we've really tried to think about as we've as we'd considered testing for short telomeres in our in our patient population, because we want to be cognizant that ultimately lung transplant is going to be kind of the the definitive treatment or, or benefit for this patient population, and you obviously don't want to unnecessarily deprive someone. So I think where we really start to say, you know is transplant going to be a viable option for a patient with short telomere syndrome is if we find significant manifestations of short telomere syndrome elsewhere. So, for example, if they come in with significant bone marrow suppression, leukopenia, uh, hypogammaglobulinemia, low CD4 counts, if they have cirrhosis or fibrosis already. But to my mind, these are things that we should have, we should have picked up anyway during the transplant evaluation. And so I think they would have been taken into account regardless of whether we understood that it was related to a short telomere or some other pathophysiologic process. So I think my practice, and I think what we really all try to do in our transplant group is get the information that we need, and unless there's really something that we can't manage that's an extrapulmonary manifestation to focus on what we can do post-transplant to minimize those complications. I appreciate that, Andrew. That's a that's a very thoughtful answer. Tough question, but but I think that was that was uh, it was reassuring as well as as well as thoughtful. Um, the I was hoping you'd comment a little bit about about danazol, um, mm. which was a synthetic androgen hormone, and you talked about um, some some data that it has potentially beneficial impact on on telomere length. And so, tell us a little bit more about that. That's the first I'd heard uh, about yeah, danazol. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of interest in, in, in several different compounds that have the potential to activate kind of that um, the telomerase kind of complex or the telomere maintenance pathways that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and so lithium, for example, is another compound that people have been interested in. And then there's some other um, agents that are used for different oncologic purposes. But danazol has been attractive because, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively benign. So it's an androgenic sex hormone, and it, it activates TERT transcription, and so actually seems to increase telomerase activity. There's a New England Journal study now a couple of years back that looked at patients um, with very short telomeres, so less than the first percentile. Um, and they showed that they were actually able to improve telomere length. And most of these patients had um, issues with anemia, and so they also showed that they were able to increase uh, their red blood cell counts. They only had seven patients in this whole population that they looked at who had pulmonary function tests that were available, and they did seem to have a slightly slower decline in their diffusion capacity. Um, I think it's really hard to know what seems to be driving the benefit of danazol. So, you know, as an androgenic sex hormone, it also is implicated in hematopoiesis. So it could just be that, you know, it's having these kind of off-target effects, um, in quotation marks, on non-telomerase pathways. And so you're getting more red blood cells just because of these additional effects. There's a couple of case reports, too, that have suggested in patients with pulmonary fibrosis when they've tried them on it um, that they've had worsening disease after uh, denosol withdrawal. And since it can cause uh, hepatic toxicity, um, in general, our practice has been, unless there's uh, an extra pulmonary reason for considering it, like significant anemia, we don't recommend it. Okay. So uh, just this is maybe a maybe a naive question, but, you know, one of the things that I've thought about and I've seen written about is is that 
diseases like like IPF specifically are ultimately and probably simplistically diseases of premature aging uh, of the lung. Given what you've learned and, and what you've contributed to in terms of, of telomeres and telomerase mutations, is that true? I think it's true for a certain set of the population. I think um, what we're finding is that IPF is, even if it looks the same at the end of the day under the microscope, people get there in different ways. Um, and for patients who have short telomeres, I think conceptually understanding it as a premature aging of lungs and potentially other organs makes the most sense. I think that you'd be probably painting with too broad of a brush uh, to use that same paradigm and try to capture some of the other ways that people get to it, like through MUC5B or some of the surfactant mechanisms. But I do think it's a very illuminating way of understanding it for the patients where that really seems to be the driving factor. Yeah, you know, the other thing is that, um, you know, it, it seems like, and, and having seen, you know, the early reports, for example, of, as you mentioned, the surfactant protein abnormalities in patients with familial IPF, it seems to me that, that studying patients with, with familial IPF has been really very fruitful in understanding, um, you know, some of the pathogenetic mechanisms, and I think it's been illuminating with telomeres and, and the other uh, and the other mutations uh, that that you had mentioned, uh, is studying not everybody with familial, you know, IPF has IPF. Right? As you mentioned, they have other they have other uh, pathologies and other um, and other clinical diseases. But do you think that's where the future lies in really understanding the complex pathogenesis uh, of of interstitial lung diseases and IPF? Is are these familial cases you think where the focus should continue to be? Yeah, I mean, I think that they really help individualize and personalize um, the directions that a uh, diagnostic and care plan can take. You know, I think that these paradigmatic cases can at least set us up with a framework that we kind of understand certain diseases to be related to certain pathways. It may be that at the end of the day, some of the non-familiar sporadic cases are going to be manifestations of different parts of these pathways, but if you can put them all up as a map and see what derangements might be in one area or another, I think those are the lessons that we can learn, even if everybody doesn't fall cleanly into one exact uh, familial paradigm. Thanks. So, Andrew, we've covered uh, really a lot of ground in the last half hour or so. So I was wondering if I could ask you, to really summarize the main take-home points from your review for our audience. I think there's lots of pearls here, and if you can distill them to several, I think that would be very helpful for, for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just as a clinician myself, I think the, the main things that I focus on are establishing a, a screening pathway, um, talking with other members of an ILD group, or reflecting on your own um, processes to identify the patients who should be screened, establishing a collaboration with a laboratory that can run the appropriate testing, and then either with an in-house or an affiliated or a large academic center that can have the medical genetics component, and really treating this like we might treat other diseases where a multidisciplinary group of folks um, can get involved and help think about uh, the care that's necessary for that patient. I think the other essential thing is that we need more information. I'm sure everybody says that, but understanding which fibrotic agents we should be using, understanding what the natural history is like, referring early to transplant, 
and then really developing plans of care as transplant centers that can help reduce the potential impact of the short telomere and short telomere mutations on post-transplant care. Great. Any any last thoughts or comments? Uh, any other points you wanted to make, Andrew? No, it's just been a really interesting area to be involved in. Really excited to kind of see what the next five and ten years bring and to really kind of help this patient population really get benefit from transplant and even thinking before that, like early diagnosis and really understanding what can be done to slow the progression of the disease. Great. And and your you know, your review is really is really a really a very nice summary of what's out there and I think it's very, very useful for, for, for clinicians. So again, I'd like to thank Dr. Courtright for participating in the podcast. I certainly learned a lot from today's discussion on the role of telomeres in interstitial lung disease, and I hope that you all did too. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you for joining in. 